Thanks for tuning into Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. A lot of us local policy nerds have been eagerly awaiting the new Charlottesville Comprehensive Plan. This process of laying out a vision for the future of the city started nearly five years ago. And on Tuesday, October 19th, the Planning Commission made a major step forward by recommending the plan to City Council for approval. So we are very excited to get the inside scoop on that process today with Charlottesville Planning Commissioner Lyle Sully Yates. And stay tuned in the second half of the show for an interview with the director of our regional libraries. All right, I'm going to hand things over to our assistant producer, Katherine Hansen, and Planning Commissioner Lyle Sully Yates. If you just wanted to start off by introducing yourself. Sure. My name is Lyle Soli Yates. I'm the chair of the Charlottesville Planning Commission. And what does the Planning Commission do? What's your work on the Planning Commission? Oh, what don't we do? We have a, a very broad uh, body of work. The, the big thing right now is we work on long-term comprehensive planning, uh, which is a comprehensive plan we update every five years, which covers basically everything that the city deals with uh, and also thinks big, thinks long, deep into the future, big into the region, uh, on all of the big issues that are of, of public concern. That's just the comprehensive plan, but that's alone, very, very big, very, very expensive, very time consuming. Besides that, we also do review of requests to city council. So things like, oh, I want a rezoning on my property so I can build something different than what is allowed by right. Or I want a special use permit to do something a little bit unusual on my property, go a little bit higher, maybe go a little bit closer to the road. The other thing we do is design review. Uh, we are also the entrance corridor review board, uh, in which case on a designated entrance corridor, which we have uh, maybe 20 in the city, we have really a surprising number. Uh, you can get into the city a lot of ways, it turns out. So we have entrance corridor uh, restrictions for every single way. I, th- I think we have every single one covered. Maybe one or two we're missing. We'll have to look at that. But if someone wants to do something significant on those on, on one of those properties in one of those corridors... Uh, they come before us and we talk about aesthetics, uh, how the how the colors make us feel, how the signage looks, uh, font, how much light is allowed through the windows, uh, all those really fine details at great length. Can you talk more about the comprehensive plan that just passed recently? So the comprehensive plan has not passed. Uh, the Charlottesville Planning Commission has recommended that council approve it Okay. Uh, with a few, I think, five uh, uh, little tweaks. I personally am hopeful uh, that the city council uh, will approve the comprehensive plan. It has been nearly five years, and she's ready. What role does the planning commission play in the comprehensive planning process? Uh, it's our baby. We uh, we we own that process. We, we know it's not just us, but it's our our responsibility, charged by uh, the state of Virginia, to to manage it, to make sure that the review happens, to make sure that everything is done in a um, not just in a a thorough process, but also an inclusive process so that everyone's uh, concerns are heard uh, and no one is left out, which is hard. Can you tell us about the foundations of this comprehensive plan? The foundations are many. Uh, It's been years, so the foundations go deep. uh, And it's based on work that went on in previous comprehensive plans, going back to 1956 with our first comprehensive plan. It's it's very much sort of an an accretion of policies, uh, which is good and bad. Um, A lot of good has happened since 1956, some rough stuff too. Uh, and there's been sort of a, 
a, a reappraisal uh, of, of all things in, in Charlottesville city government in the last few years, uh, which has been good, uh, difficult, uh, tumultuous, um, and has led to a lot of people leaving the city and some difficulties keeping a city manager kind of holding things together. It's, it's work. It's hard. It's asking a lot of people. Uh, so the comprehensive plan process has been going through that period, uh, through, I think, six city managers uh, over that uh, almost five-year period. And uh, it's been hard because uh, every, every city manager has sort of their own style, their own preferences, uh, priorities, their ways of working. Um, and while the planning commission manages this process, the city manager, that, that's where the buck stops. That's in a city manager form of government, whoever's in that seat, pretty important. I, I should say at this point, I've, I've shared some of my own personal views. These are the views of this guy, Lyle Soliates, uh, not the Charlottesville Planning Commission, not the city of Charlottesville. Okay. So what are the major components of the amendments of this comprehensive plan? I know you talk about it being a, a process. The most substantive amendment that I can remember off the top of my head uh, was uh, one suggested by Commissioner Jody Lehendro, uh, which was very concerned with um, historic preservation. Uh, that, that's that's his professional background. He has a lot of deep expertise in it, which has been tremendously valuable. Uh, and his concern, really, you know, going back for maybe years, maybe since, since the beginning, uh, has been to make these changes in the comprehensive plan, but make sure that we don't lose anything in terms of uh, historic preservation and historic quality. Uh, there's a, a risk if a, a property is, is very deeply uh, disrupted. If the, for example, if a building is torn down, which does happen, um, it could be delisted from the uh, national and state historic registries, in which case no ta no tax credits, no preservation, you know, a highway could run through it. There's just, you're out. There's nothing. So that's a significant risk. Uh, so his uh, uh, amendment suggestion, which was unanimously passed, uh, was to make very sure in the rezoning uh, that nothing is done that uh, endangers those sort of vital characteristics uh, to to make sure nothing gets delisted in that way. How does this comprehensive plan consider environmental changes and the current state of our climate? So this is, it's been almost five years and, and we've learned a lot in those five years, uh, which has been an interesting challenge. Um, we actually, in the previous 2013 comprehensive plan, in my opinion, uh, had a really advanced sort of uh, far-sighted, long-sighted uh, view on environmental quality and environmental preservation, uh, one that I, I continue to be proud of. Um, but, you know, it's been a few years. Uh, since that time, we've learned a lot more about how bad the climate crisis is uh, and more about what we can do um, and, and sort of better science on it, which is good. Uh, so there's been a lot of feedback from the public over that, you know, those, those many years that we've been working on the comprehensive plan saying, oh, well, actually, you know, things have changed. This, this piece needs to be updated. This piece needs to be updated. Hey, the city of Charlottesville, you, you own a national uh, natural gas utility. Maybe maybe do something about that. Uh, maybe get out of the fossil fuels business. Maybe stop subsidizing fossil fuels in that way. Uh, which personally, pretty reasonable. And, and there's been some adjustment in the language over time to, to keep it fresh. So I know that the impending climate crisis has overlaps in terms of affordable housing and housing inequities and resource inequities. How does this comprehensive plan address both of those things in tandem? So there are many elements there. So broadly, big picture, uh, we, we have a little bit of data that tells us where people live, where they work, and through that, uh, how far they're driving every day to get to work. COVID, you know, has made things a little bit more interesting. 
Um, but we are expecting more and more that people are going to show, start showing up to work. Uh, and there will be more of those long commutes again. And generally what we've seen is people are living farther and farther out and driving more and more. And they're not, j broadly, they're not carpooling. Um, they're driving alone and they're driving bigger and heavier vehicles. Uh, so increasingly a larger carbon footprint all the way around per person, which doesn't look good. Uh, it, it, it's a real problem. When you ignore that, uh, our carbon footprint in Charlottesville is not that bad. Um, if you ignore all the, the cars and the parking, um, just ignoring that, then, then it's, it, it's more about a story about heating and cooling. That, that becomes the, the major factor, which is still significant. As I mentioned, we, we have a, a, a fossil fuels utility managed by the city. So we're, we're not you know, all, all on green power here. But when you consider the regional effects of our housing policies and our transportation policies, they really push people to live far out and drive long distances every day. Um, yeah, it really adds up. How do the amendments in this comprehensive plan address affordable housing and inequities in Charlottesville? So this is something I'm, I'm very proud of. Uh, going back to 2017, you know, equity was a major priority for the commission, uh, even before my time, and, and was one of the things that got me excited about being a part of this process. So equity was and, and, and housing were considered to be crucial. In, in 2018, we did the uh, housing needs assessment which actually gave us a quantitative uh, snapshot of how big the problem was, which was a real wake-up call because it was much bigger than we thought. It was much harder than we thought, more expensive, and it would take longer to solve. Uh, more people were hurting than we knew. So that sort of helped us step back and say, well, this problem is big. We need to solve it in a larger way, uh, which led to the, the, the current process, which actually led with an affordable housing uh, plan to really find the ways to address those problems at the proper scale, uh, not just within Charlottesville, Charlottesville, but regionally, working with Albemarle County, with the University of Virginia, uh, and then bringing that into the comprehensive plan, uh, into the future land use map, into policies that will affect who is allowed to live where and at what price. Can you tell us a little bit more about the future land use map? Future land use map is a big deal, and that's been the, the major topic of conversation uh, in the last year. It is a, a, a visual document, it's just one page, uh, that shows the city of Charlottesville with uh, splashes of color, uh, more and more splashes of color as, as time has gone on. It's remarkably detailed. It's the most detailed future land use map we have ever made in our city's history. A uh, pretty, pretty incredible document. It is very closely a zoning map. Like it is, it's parcel by parcel detail. Pretty incredible. And just an absurd amount of work. Uh, really impressive what the consultants have been able to do uh, working with staff. The future land use map is like the overall comprehensive plan. It's a policy document. It's a guidance document. It's a, a vision of what is to come, which guides more fine-grained uh, rules and regulations that actually have the weight of law. Uh, this is more of a, the, the why and the where, and less of the very specific legalistic how, which we will get to in the rezoning. Uh, there's been a lot of sort of confusion that, and be, partly I think because the future land use map we are presenting is so detailed, People look at it and think, oh, I'm looking at a zoning map. This is going to be, you know, have that kind of parcel by parcel detail that will tell me exactly what is allowed on my property, you know, how far from the street, you know, how, how, high, a, how, how high a building, you know, with that kind of deep precision, which we will get there. We need that. We do want that information, but we're just not there yet. We're, we're still in big picture land. Is the future land use map likely to see changes during zoning rewrites if the comprehensive plan is passed? That is my personal expectation, yes, uh, just because we haven't done that detailed parcel-by-parcel, block-by-block analysis. 
And when we do that, we're going to see stuff. We're going to see like, oh, this is actually higher than we thought, so the height limits don't make sense. Uh, let's adjust that here. Um, those kinds of uh, adjustments. This is another question to the future. If the comprehensive plan is passed, what can Charlottesville citizens expect in terms of impact in the next year? In the next year, you can expect a whole lot of public hearings about the rezoning. Uh, it is possible, as I understand, it is possible for developers to look at the approved uh, future land use map and look at their parcels current zoning and say, ah, I see a difference here. Broadly, I think this kind of a change could make sense. Uh, would council support that change? So they could request a rezoning based on the new future land use map. And that's actually standard practice in uh, the county and has been standard practice in the city since 2013. We haven't adjusted our uh, zoning significantly since 2003. Resyncing our zoning and our future land use map is uh, a change for us, and I think an important one, a good one, because it will create certainty, clarity uh, for property owners, for builders, uh, for people who just want to know what's going to happen. So I read that the comprehensive plan was that it's revised every five years. The last revision was in 2013. So is this one slightly overdue? Yeah, it's been a, kind of a long five years, hasn't okay. it? <laughs> a long five years. I was just wondering, uh, how did you feel upon hearing that the plan passed unanimously? Oh, I, I was very excited about it. It's uh, it, uh, Commissioner Stolzenberg, I think, what, said, uh, you know, it felt a little bit anticlimactic, you know, all this work for all these years. And then, oh, it's done. OK, fantastic. But it's a lie. Uh, it's not real until it's until council passes it. When are the next two hearings? Uh, no, November 15th, uh, council will be doing the first reading. And I'm, I'm, I think December. I'm, I'm not, not remembering the exact date uh, for the, the second reading in the vote. Is there anything Charlottesville citizens should be looking forward to in the meantime or just sort of watching closely? Hmm. I think the council meeting will be very interesting. You can certainly look at uh, this uh, Charlottesville Plans Together website uh, for more information about this. Uh, and you can also sign up for the email list there to get alerts on what's going on, things that are coming. Uh, the rezoning should be interesting. That should have a whole uh, public outreach process in and of itself, which will be way more fine-grained where people can really talk about the streets they live in. What's next on the agenda? Oh, so next is capital improvement plan, which is always a challenge. Uh, it will be more so now uh, without a city manager and without uh, the person who has been managing it in past years. Um, that will make it harder. It will make it less predictable. Uh, we've got a lot of um, schools projects coming up. We've got the affordable housing plan that needs funding and at quite a, a big scale. Uh, and probably to do all that, uh, we will need tax increases, which is a big fight. Can you tell us a little bit more about the affordable housing plan? Yes. So the affordable housing plan has sort of three big ideas. Uh, one of those is to allow more homes in the city. Kind of a kooky idea. Uh, another is to spend money to make sure that those new, or at least some of those new homes, uh, go to people who, who really need it, to address uh, those with the greatest need. So dealing with uh, restrictions on based on income, on who gets those, some of those properties, and uh, subsidies, so that the cost of those is actually achievable uh, to those people who need that help. So we're talking about public housing, we're talking about vouchers, we're talking about uh, working with uh, nonprofits like Piedmont Housing Alliance, Habitat for Humanity, uh, doing all the things that we can uh, to address the problems that people are, are dealing with at scale. Well, thank you for coming in today. Is there anything you would like to add? Charlottesville residents are remarkably engaged, informed, and caring. It's a good thing. 
You can read all about the comprehensive plan and view the draft future land use map on charlottesvilletomorrow.org. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Virginia's air, water, and natural treasures and leading the way towards a healthy environment for all. Learn more at southernenvironment.org. Thanks for staying with us. I'm going to hand things over to Paige Waterhouse, who interviewed David Plunkett, the director of James Madison Regional Libraries, to talk about the library's centennial commemorations. My name is David Plunkett, and I am the director of JMRL, which serves Charlottesville, Albemarle, Green, Louisa, and Nelson. Can you tell us about the history of the library system here in Charlottesville in Central Virginia? Yeah, so uh, the first public library opened um, in 1921 at the McIntyre Building in downtown Charlottesville, which is right behind the current Central Library. It was a gift of Paul Goodloe McIntyre to the city of Charlottesville. Um, Mr. McIntyre is well known for other gifts around town, including uh, both Confederate statues downtown. Um, and the city then picked up ownership of the library and uh, taxpayer dollars basically paid for service. Um, Albemarle County residents were allowed to use the library and it was a segregated facility. So it opened up for uh, white families only in 1921. That was 100 years ago. So JMRL is looking back at 100 years of public library service, including the uh, opening of a uh, segregated branch at the Jefferson School, the 4th Street branch, which was opened in 1936, I believe. So a full 15 years after public library service started, the first branch opened to provide segregated service. That was open until 1948, at which point uh, there was a push from members of the local community, including Reverend Benjamin Bunn, to improve services at the 4th Street branch where the collection was um, not up to, up to the needs of the community and the facilities were not meeting the needs of the community. At that point, the library board closed the 4th Street branch, presumably fired the employees there, and opened up reading room access at the McIntyre Library in downtown Charlottesville. Now, how welcoming that would have been to black families at that time, I think we can all imagine. Um, the... The real uh, um, integrated service in Charlottesville, I pinpoint as 1966 when the Gordon Avenue branch opened, which was a building designed to be open to the entire community, so for, uh, for everybody. Um, in the early days, in the 40s, the library started offering bookmobile service out into Albemarle County, and it went from being the Charlottesville Library to the Charlottesville Albemarle Library. Went through another name change and was briefly called the McIntyre Library. In the 1970s and 1972, the state had incentivized libraries to get together and share resources. Uh, they incentivized jurisdictions. So Charlottesville, Albemarle, Green, and Louisa got together and formed JMRL uh, with new branches opening in the outlying communities. So it's almost 50 years now that this area has had a regional library system that's truly free and open to the public. And you can ask all my next question there. Can you talk a little bit about the modern day like tensions and struggles of trying to revisit that history and how you can recontextualize that and bring that to light? I know there have been a lot of conversations about McIntyre, especially with the Confederate statues. How do you kind of cope with that today? 
Yeah, uh, certainly um, when the library started looking at 100 years of service in the area, uh, there's a lot of discussion about, well, how, how do you approach that? It's not really a celebration of 100 years of public library service if it wasn't truly free and open to the public for that whole 100 years. Um, so we're thinking about this as a commemoration, as the beginning of something. Um, I really feel like the library, the public library in America is a bit of a microcosm for America itself. You know, it goes through what the people go through. It's, it's a, you know, a truly democratic institution for all. Um, and in Jim Crow Charlottesville, that meant going through segregation and going through integration and then uh, all of that that process to, to get to where we are now, which is still not a complete process, of course. Uh, we talk about, uh, I have a library board member, um, Lisa Wolfork, who, who once said that um, the organization needs to remember what the institution stands for. Uh, so the organization now is providing public library service to all uh, and trying very hard to be equitable and to bridge gaps and make sure that there's equal access to information, but the institution opened as a segregated facility. And it's important that we acknowledge those roots and look to make sure that the organization now um, has looked through that history to make sure that there aren't any residues. A hundred years later, are there any things that were kind of baked into the formation of this service, this public service that are still there a hundred years later that are inequitable or are, are barriers to access for any members of the community. So the organization today is responsible for what the institution at that time did and making sure that uh, any wrongs of the past are addressed. And the only way to do that is to learn the history and to talk about it and to talk to people in the community that uh, face those barriers over time. So while you know the schools redlining. Um, it's all of a piece, basically. Uh, the segregated library is in the same boat where it was an attempt by the power structure at the time to prevent access to information. So if our goal now is to give free and open access to information, then it's important to look back at that history. Right. And as you're looking back at that history, how would you say, if you could give me some more specific examples, you guys are addressing those sort of like intrinsic inequalities that are baked into this like system? Yeah, um, I think uh, some of that started, as I mentioned, in the 60s, right, where, where uh, buildings were opened that were desegregated. Um, so it's been an ongoing path throughout that. And I think in the modern library, the modern public library, it means uh, it means being mindful of the services that we're providing, making sure that we are reaching all members of all of our communities in Charlottesville, Albemarle, Green, Louisa, and Nelson. It means that uh, doing the equity work that needs to be done, as any organization is doing when it comes to hiring, when it comes to evaluating our own policies and procedures. Uh, one thing that we have a close eye on is um, fines, library fines, um, and the library system, JMRL, got rid of fines for juvenile accounts a few years ago, um, and uh, I think that that has been a real barrier to access in the past for public libraries, uh, and we would see sad stories of kids coming in in high school when they need to use the library and they couldn't use their cards because they had racked up fines when they were very young for whatever reason. So now we've removed that barrier and it's a matter of making sure that we spread that message out there. 
um, so that people know that, you know, we really do have unfettered access, especially for juveniles. Could you talk about some of these services that the library offers? Sure. Yeah. Well, you picked an interesting time to ask about library services, right? Just like every other service during COVID uh, it has, it has been through um, quite the journey over the last year. Um, mm-hmm. But all the JMRL branches are currently open uh, to the public for full operational hours and offering programming. The, the interesting thing about the pandemic, as everybody has learned, is like what how much of what we do could pivot to um, virtual. So we have programs now that um, reach a broader audience because we can also perform them virtually. Um, but we still, at the core, the library is a place for people to get together and share ideas and learn about themselves and each other. So um, right now our services are, of course, uh, providing information to people, whether that's a book, a program, a display, even uh, an online database. The public library is a place that people trust for vetted information. Uh, they can come in physically or access all those services virtually. And there's a million other things that the public library does on a daily basis in terms of helping people to, to get what they need. Uh, I once heard a great phrase called an ask, an anomalous state of knowledge where somebody will come into the library and they'll ask a question. Um, the question might be like, do you have any books about car repair? And the more time they spend working with library staff or talking to other members of the public, the end result might be that, oh, actually they're looking for a job in a specific sector in car repair or whatnot. And, and the, the staff will help them narrow that focus. So from this anomalous state to like, okay, well, here are the actual bits of information that we can give you to help you get to where you need to be. So uh, it, a lot of public service that the library offers is, um, is, is um, known to the folks that come in, like free notary services. We have a bookmobile that travels all throughout Charlottesville and Albemarle to provide access to information, broadband access at all of our locations, computers to use, printing services. So uh, anything people need really to meet their information needs. So you mentioned this a little bit and how you guys were adapting during the times of COVID, but I was wondering if you could go back to how the library kind of continues to adapt, especially in the growing media age. Yeah, uh, I think what this really is something we've talked about for a long time. You know, the people have been talking about um, libraries and the advent of um, first ebooks, you know, as this was the big sea change happening. Um, and then, of course, COVID hit, and so so much of our world now is virtual. And uh, this really struck home for me when we were planning a program in conjunction with our partners at the Festival of the Book. It was going to be in the spring of 2020 when the award-winning author Jacqueline Woodson was coming down for the book festival. And we were doing a community read program with programmings at a bunch of our branches. It all had to be shut down because of COVID. Uh, Jacqueline couldn't come down. So we rescheduled it as a virtual event last spring, um, and I woke up one Sunday morning to my phone buzzing from all of my friends across the country who read the New York Times saying, your, your program with Jacqueline Woodson got written up in the New York Times. And oh it was just a calendar of things to do this week, you know, something like that, like literary events. But here was this little Central Virginia library system, you know, offering a program that people could access all across the world. So hundreds of people came to that program, <clears throat> I think 700 plus people. Had it been in person in one of our libraries, you know, 150 we could fit maybe at the most. So it really uh, drove home the point that the library is offering services and content 
that people need. You know, they need access to information. Um, and it's our job to adapt to the formats that people need. So we still have lots of people coming in and checking out physical books. They do not appear to be going anywhere. Uh, Most of our patrons are still using physical books. Last year during the pandemic was the first time that our digital collection was our busiest branch. So busier even than our Northside location, which is by far the busiest library. But once our buildings were opened again, that turned around and Northside is again the busiest. So uh, bottom line is it's our job as librarians to figure out what the needs are and meet people where they are. So plenty of our service area there is broadband dearth. Like they don't have that capacity to join a virtual program. They can't download their books and materials. They need to come to the library in order to get that access. So we need to be able to provide the services to them and to the folks that are at home and can't get away from home right now and can only have virtual access. So the trick is when you think about libraries to replace the word book with information, And it's the library's job to provide that access to that information, to give people the whole breadth of possibilities and let them make choices about how they access it and what they access. And I'm happy to hear that, too, because I'm I'm a huge fan of the physical book. So it's it feels good to hear that straight from a librarian. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm device agnostic. You know, I want the content. So if I can get if there's a book I want to read. Um, if I get the print book first, I'll read that. If I get the ebook first, I'll read that. Good. It's good to be adaptable. Mm-hmm. So how are you guys celebrating your 100th anniversary? Can you talk about some of the events and things you have going on? Yeah, um, two main events. Uh, the first was working with local filmmaker Lorenzo Dickerson, who uh, the library has um, been longtime admirers of. He makes films of local interest about uh, local institutions, his own family. He grew up in the area. And we've had the opportunity to showcase some of those at the library and host discussions at several of our branches um, over the past few years. It seemed like a natural fit to reach out to Lorenzo and say, hey, you know, we want to tell this story about library service. We want to tell the whole story about who had access and who didn't have access and uh, trace it up to today's date, and uh, Lorenzo was excited by that project, and we spent the better part of a year working with him um, to make that film, and it premiered last week. We had an in-person premiere at the Paramount Theater in downtown Charlottesville, and then a Q&A afterwards uh, with uh, moderator Tom Chapman, the director of the Historical Society for Albemarle Charlottesville. And we're also going to, the library is going to have a virtual version of that program on December 9th and then make copies of the film available to check out at all of our library locations. So that was the, the, um, the big project we were working on. The other, um, JMRL worked with the Albemarle-Charlottesville Historical Society to put up a, dis- a display on the third floor of the Central Library that traces that history of library services from 1921 until the present um, and tells some of the stories about what that struggle was for the community and then how the library reflected the struggle in the community. Uh, this actually came out of a suggestion that a patron gave to Jay Morrell when we were talking about naming the meeting room at the Central Library after Gregory Swanson. The Central Library in downtown Charlottesville was formerly a federal building, and there was a courthouse, uh, a courtroom on the, on the top floor in which a seminal case was tried. Uh, Gregory Swanson was a lawyer who, who uh, was admitted to the law school at the university, but then denied admission by the uh, Board of Visitors because he was black, um, and he sued. 
in the courtroom here, uh, and his case was, um, his legal team was the NAACP legal team, so it included Thurgood Marshall and Spotswood Robinson and Oliver Hill. They argued this case and won, so Gregory Swanson was the first African-American to gain admittance to the university, and that happened in the building that's now the library. So the Historical Society worked on um, information about that case and getting that display up as part of the overall display of the history of the library. And that is going to be up permanently. So anytime the downtown library is open, people can come in and view that display on the third floor. That's great. And I also love that the film is going to be accessible to all patrons as well. You're going to be able to check that out. Can you talk about the film? How would you describe um, Lorenzo's work? Well, um, Lorenzo has a unique gift, uh, really, to tell very personal and small stories uh, about our community that resonate, that really reflect what's going on in our country and our world. So uh, this story about the library really, as I've said, reflects 100 years of American history and Lorenzo just has a talent for, for that. Um, two things that he's amazingly good at. One is getting people to, in their own words, tell their stories and, and make them approachable and make them relatable. And the other is to give a sense of space, which um, really came out in this film because there are eight library locations and a bookmobile and people may not get a chance to visit them all or might not be aware of where all these locations are. And he can really kind of frame the people in those places and give a sense for what those communities that they serve are like based on what the library is like. So uh, it's just a very talented artist and, and we're lucky to work with him. And I think the film really showcases the, what our community has, has, uh, has gained from sharing resources and having a large public library and then what they're asking for in return from that public library. You can get more information about our local library system at jmrl.org. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our assistant producers this week are Katherine Hansen and Paige Waterhouse. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Myrna Lasco and Jay Punt. This is Charlottesville Soundboard. <laughs>